The Teachers College at Emporia State University presents How We Teach This, a podcast where we talk with experts and educators. If you missed part one of The Dark Side of Motivation with Dr. Jenny Moss, you're going to want to go back and listen to that before you hear today's episode because we're going to continue that conversation and we're going to look at how student motivation and autonomy impacts their engagement in the classroom. Let's talk about what is engagement. And you brought up the idea that some people think a quality classroom is one that is actually controlling and their students may look behaved, but they're not necessarily engaged. So if we really are wanting a quality classroom to be a classroom where students are engaged and actively learning, can you define that for me and explain what that looks like? I know there's probably a lot of things you could you could point to. One piece to think about is looking at emotions. And I like that as a way to detect engagement. Is if you were to look at the students' emotions, if you could, you know, go in a classroom and stand somewhere and in, in, be invisible, if the students are displaying positive emotions, they're probably engaged. Good teachers will read the room and, you know, you, oh, there's a great dip and sweep technique when you're, especially if you're teaching, oh, elementary kids that are even kindergartners when they're at centers, you know, you're working with one small group, you get them doing what they're doing, you look up, you look around. And one of the things a good teacher is going to assess is motivation. If she looks around and sees the students look bored or they're starting to be angry, or they're fighting over resources, they're probably not engaged. Other indicators that people have used before are students, now this one can be misleading, but are students working quick, if they have manipulatives or materials in front of them, are they working quickly? And that, um, I've had teachers say, but I want them to work carefully. And so I think it depends on the context of what you're doing with the materials. But if you've got puzzles for them to solve, if they're moving quickly, they're thinking, they're engaged, they're, okay, that didn't fit there, that doesn't go there, or a math problem, if it's something complex and they're working in a group, oh, wait, let's try this. Does that fit there? Or what about this? Should we do this operation first? And groups of students planning a research project or a paper in high school, might have lots of fast discussion going back and forth. Those are ways, like the emotions and the level of energy that the group, a group has, or even individual students have, can be really good ways to detect engagement. But it's not a perfect science because we've, I was just trying to find this citation the other day. So I'll say this in a general way. Teachers often aren't that good at picking out who is engaged and who's not. Oh, really? Because we may not always be trained. We may be ready to look around and see, okay, is anyone bleeding? Did Josie bite Ben again? Is Does he have his phone out? You know, we're looking for those things often. We're looking to see who's causing trouble or who's not causing trouble. Woohoo! But identifying engagement we often use it as a, we often think of it as like, oh, they're cooperating. Mm. 
who's really engaged might be the ones that you're not thinking of, like the one staring out the window. They may be super deep in thought. You don't know. Unfortunately, that's always the, the bane of every teacher's existence. We cannot actually open up their head and climb in and see what's happening. So all we have is their behavior. Again, I, that's why I think emotions can be a good way to uh, to look around and just get a get a read, take the temperature of your class. That that's a really good observation, and I have a feeling it's probably easier to know if a student who is leans towards being an extrovert is engaged, and those students who are an introvert are probably yeah. a lot more difficult to know. Are they thinking about the topic I'm teaching? Or are they thinking about what they're doing Friday night? Right. Well, and that can be, I have this great story. I, I've shared this with classes for years where getting them to look at you and pay attention to you in some contexts can be meaningless. <laughs> One of our, the art teacher we had at the last elementary school I taught at was amazing and fantastic. And she loved to color her hair. Different colors, you know, you never knew what it would be when she showed up. And she told me the story of having a bunch of kindergartners one afternoon, and they're looking at her with just rapt attention, and they're just hanging on every word. And she's, you know, showing them what they're going to do, how they're going to pick up the materials, what the finished product is going to look like, what all the steps are. And they're just paying attention. And so, she finished her lesson, brief lesson, well, they're kindergartners, put her stuff down and said, can someone tell me what, what the first step is going to be? And a little girl raised her hand and just said, Miss McCoola, did you color your hair again? And all 12, <laughs> all the rest of the kindergartners just nodded. Yeah. Yeah. Did you color your hair? So that's really all they were paying attention to. Oh, my goodness. Oh, well, that's a funny story. Yeah. Would you tell us what the research says about controlling behavior from teachers? Is there any evidence from the research side on what the consequences are for students yeah. if they spend time in a classroom of a teacher who is very controlling? Well, we've talked a little bit about how it hinders that high quality engagement and they may put in less effort and they may be less likely to persist. Another big piece of it that, that I worry about these directly controlling teacher behaviors, the ones where we're trying to change their behavior or their opinions instantly lead to a lot of anger and anxiety in students. And we're asking them for that kind of total submission, like, no, you need to do it my way, that whole, I mean, my way or the highway. No, this isn't a democracy. This is my classroom. Students feel very anxious. Things are unfair and, and unjust. And they, they get angry, especially as we get into middle school and early high school. They're, sense of social justice really starts to uh, develop and they start to have a sense about the wider world and want to speak up against things they find to be problems in the world. 
And that problem just might be their third period algebra teacher. <laughs> and so they're very likely to bring up things that they find unjust and that sense that they can't change it or if they get in trouble for speaking out and leads to a lot of anger. That doesn't lead to a lot of learning. Again, also, teachers can be really controlling by constantly disrupting and redirecting students. And that makes them feel very anxious because they don't know, like, am I doing it right? Am I really doing it right? Do I have to go up and ask? Am I doing it right? Wait, am I supposed to get out of my seat? Can I go ask? They don't know, like, when the next interruption is coming. And so they're always on a sense of a high alert so that they make sure they're doing it right so they don't get in trouble. And those students, if you are a controlling teacher, are going to look like they're doing it right. They're doing what you want. They're sitting at their table. They're sitting in their seats. They're doing the work that they're supposed to do. They're not talking if they're not supposed to be talking, things like that. But because of the atmosphere in the classroom and the sense of control, they're having to spend a fair bit of their brain power navigating the circumstances, and they're not spending as much of that brain power on their lessons. Like I was saying before, this becomes exponential. So if I don't learn as much in third grade, I'm not going to be as successful in fourth grade. And if by the time eighth grade rolls around, if I've had a lot of controlling teachers, I may be even more likely to be behind when I get to high school. And, and speaking of middle and high school, we also see teachers become more controlling as they teach older kids. Oh, yeah. You'd think that we might offer them a little more freedom when they get to high school or middle school. But I think that students in these age ranges are less likely to project that sense that they want to please you. You know, second graders love nothing more than making their teacher happy. And in a controlling classroom, teachers will leverage that. They might say things like, oh, everybody line up nice and quiet. Let's make Mrs. Moss happy. Oh. Yeah. And that becomes a should and a have to and a kind of motivation that we would call introjected, where students are only doing it because they feel like they have to. It's an ego preservation thing or because someone else said they should. So they're not getting a sticker for it, but they are now being made to be responsible for that teacher's happiness. And if I get mad at that teacher for some different reason, I can get back at them by not doing what they want. Yeah, there's that. And, and not a lot of second graders are going to be there, but definitely some <laughs> of them will. Some and of them some will. middle schoolers might be. Right. But when you get to middle school, they don't necessarily care about your happiness you're no longer as much of a surrogate parent as someone who's preventing them from having social time. Oh, yeah. And their peers now are more important to them. And so I think that as teachers, we tend to clamp down more to make sure we get the learning happening, because if you let them go, they're just going to socialize all day long. That's a very good point. At least that's how the conventional wisdom says. So 
<laughs> we do tend to be more. And in fact, in a study we did years ago, this wasn't actually the point of the study, but we collected data from eight cultures around the world. And what we found was that from preschool to high school, in the whole international sample, it was more controlling. The teachers behaved more likely to behave more controlling or endorse more control the older their students got. That's interesting. Well, just want to add in terms of control, we do try to find things that motivate students. And the secret is they kind of have to motivate themselves, which is where extrinsic rewards and things become something that, that over time doesn't work. And one example I love to pick on is the Pizza Hut Book It program. I'm sorry, Pizza Hut, but I really wish they would stop. The idea is, I mean, on the surface, sure, who doesn't love free pizza? Free pizza is great. But who doesn't love getting pizza for reading books? Motivation researchers, that's who doesn't like it. But students, what they find in these is students who didn't like to read or maybe were struggling readers will do it at some surface level to get the pizza. Some really compliant kids who may be good readers, but are also good at like playing the game and following all the rules will read a lot and get lots of pizza. But the students who genuinely like to read will think to themselves, Oh, so I like to read, but now you are rewarding me for that, huh? Maybe this means reading isn't a good thing, and it's something that I should just have to be rewarded for. What they find when they look at these is that students will, all students will decrease the amount that they're reading after the program is over. Really? That's mm -hmm. so sad. I so know. it doesn't have long-term benefits. It's just nope. a temporary motivation. Almost all controlling mm -hmm. behaviors by teachers have a temporary way to solve the problem, but they what they want doesn't last in the long term. Another study was looking at situations where teachers were using tokens for rewards. Mm -hmm. Oh, I know. It was rewards of, of uh, reading comprehension. That's right. I was looking at reading literature. And so reading comprehension went up when the students got the tokens, but it decreased when the token program went away. Mm. So what is the line then between positive behavior, encouraging positive behavior? I'm going to motivate the students in a, in a positive way and then pushing it into a negative direction where it's controlling. What, what is the line that separates, um, these two realms? That is such a great question. And I'm just going to, the first thing, it's like this just screamed its way into my head. It's the viewpoint. And if what you're doing is coming from your viewpoint, it might be controlling. And if what you're doing is, if you're looking at, if you're taking the student's perspective then you'll be more likely to be doing something that is autonomy supportive. One thing I was thinking when we were talking about this the first time is that 
we want to ask students, what is it you want? Maybe there is an opportunity for a reward or a prize or something. But if it's something that the class has come together and decided on and they've got some autonomy, they've got some volition, they say, okay, got it. If we all finish our projects by this time and we all have the opportunity to help each other finish and we all meet the requirements of the project, then we can have a special lunch in the classroom with you as the teacher. And the students have all decided this. And then then it's not necessarily control as much as it is there's volitional buy-in and they get it and they're willing to work toward that. Okay. So when it's when you've got the student's viewpoint in mind, then you can really help stop yourself from being controlling. I've seen it happen. Parents do it all the time. Teachers do it all the time. They bring in or they set up a reward for the kids and they the kids don't care. Mm -hmm. And then they're mad because, well, I promised you I would do this. And the students don't have the heart to tell them. Yeah, but we don't care. Mm -hmm. I remember doing it once as a fourth grade teacher where if so-and-so did something or other, I would sit with them at lunch in the cafeteria. <laughs> and they had, oh, yeah, okay, you can see where this is going. They had to take, <laughs> they had to take me aside and tell me, we, we don't want you down there. Oh, no. well, that's no. so sad. I know, but I didn't ask them. I huh? just thought that would be the coolest thing. I never thought to ask them do you want this? It's a very good point. And when the time came, the poor girl's like, um, I really don't. This is our time to be together. You can stay in the room. <laughs> <laughs> so what advice would you have for a teacher who has, through maybe the listening to this podcast, discovered some controlling behavior of their own. I know I came into teaching because I wanted to have a positive impact for students. I really wanted to be nicely remembered by my students and to have them learn what I wanted them to learn. But I can relate to some of these controlling behaviors yeah. just out of my survival necessity, oh, yeah. but also from my teacher training. So what would be your advice for someone that, that's in my shoes and is saying, I want to change? What do I do? It's not easy. My cognitive psychology professor in grad school said once that cognitive change is dearly bought. And I have for years tried to find out if he was quoting somebody. But it is so true that changing our mind is a really difficult thing. We know as teachers that when we teach new content, students often are really just mapping it on to what they already know. It, it's, it's muddy and then they have to synthesize it with what they know. And you can get into the Piaget assimilate and accommodate. We're not good at accommodating. That's the part where it's uncomfortable and we have to make space for something new and it's hard. If you see that you've got some controlling behaviors and you really want to get it in check, give yourself some grace first, because this is probably what you saw 
what you've learned, what you've been taught to do. If, especially if you're a new teacher, your colleague down the hall might say things like, yeah, you know, they teach you all that stuff in college, but here you'll find out what really works. Oh. You're getting socialized to do these things. I think the first thing is being mindful. Notice it. Notice it when you're doing it. Maybe you have a little clip, a chart of your own. If you carry a clipboard or you have something that it's with you that you can discreetly make a note about yourself. When are you more controlling? Are you more controlling as it gets closer to lunch when the students are getting squirrely and have ants in their pants? Maybe that's a trigger for you then. Are you more controlling when students are not being nice to one another? Is that something that makes you feel like, I can't have that in my classroom? Did you say that to her? Jimmy, go sit on the timeout chair. You're stopping the behavior, but maybe that's not the whole lesson you want Jimmy to learn. Being mindful of when you're really being controlling or or think about these phrases. I often say to my students, especially you can be controlling with yourself too. You know, I have to do this. I need to do this. And often I get, well, I know that I should. And so I'll say this very carefully. I tell them not to should all over themselves. And so be careful with yourself. This is a, you're learning something new. But like I was saying, I mentioned rewards earlier. Maybe you've been using a lot of rewards. You get it, you get an answer right, you get a piece of candy, or you do this, you get that. And that's how you notice you've been managing things in your class. Scale back a little. One thing you can do unexpected rewards are much more effective because if you're expecting a reward, then it's like your paycheck and that's what you're working for. But nobody expects the end of the year bonus at their company. Wow, that's so great. Mm -hmm. So if you like to make cookies, if you've had a few weeks of particularly great behavior there's no rule that says you can't surprise them and bring in cookies and tell them why. You can even just bring in cookies because you like them. It doesn't have to be tied to a reward. That's that's a cool idea. Mm -hmm. Are there any resources out there that a teacher can use to reflect on if they have controlling tendencies? When we talked before we recorded this, we I know you asked me about this and I did some a couple of deep dives and I have to say no. Oh darn it. Okay. <laughs> I, I will take and, that out of the podcast. Oh, that's okay. Actually, I can the the reason why is interesting though, because we don't want teachers to do this. It's the same reason. I mean, we don't want them to do controlling things. And when we have things tend when they get out in the world. They tend to develop a life of their own. There are resources if you look at like behavioral management techniques or things like that. I mean, there are, they're, they're easy to find. If you look at some techniques like that and you see yourself reflected in a lot of them, you might feel like, Oh, but to me, it's the same reason why when my 12 year old wanted my six year old to watch mean girls with her, 
I said no, because the six-year-old was probably going to think it was a documentary and a how-to movie. Good observation. Where the 12-year-old got the joke. Yeah. I think that in the world of autonomy supportive behavior, I can tell you what are some controlling behaviors, but in terms of like checklists and ways to assess yourself, you know, one way, if you're really looking for a place to start, even before you get to the mindfulness is how do you feel? Do you feel good? And I know that, and we joke about it sometimes if I'm even just illustrating a point with my college students and I pretend to be a mean teacher, I just feel bad afterward. And I apologize to the student I was mean to because I know it made them feel bad too. Wow. And so just thinking about how do you feel after you've done something? And one of the things we find is that when teachers learn how to teach in an autonomy supportive way, they have greater job satisfaction and they have an enhanced sense of well-being. That's cool. They feel better. And controlling teaching doesn't make you feel good. Hmm. You, you know, you, you feel angry. Are you angry with your students? Are you disappointed with how things are going? Are you afraid for things? And so it may be an, a way to key in on it that's not just a checklist that might, you know, escape its bounds and become someone's idea of, oh, here's what you do. I had in my classroom, we incorporated gamification into one of my courses. And I had an activity planned and I had written out all the things that I wanted the students to do in that activity. And they came in and I had adequately prepped them for this moment. And that was an important piece of it that I wasn't sure I had accomplished, but it turns out I had. And I presented the problem to the students and they just took it and ran with it. And I had a student step up as a leader in the classroom and he started just dividing responsibilities for what they were going to do on the project. And I just stepped back and watched. And it was one of the most amazing days of my teaching career of giving up that control part and allowing the students to just do it. And I can't describe the awe and the feeling that I had in the moment when I've got kids who are introverted, not really involved. And one of them pipes up and says, I'll do that. And off he went. And it was just like, oh, Oh, that's so beautiful. And that feeling you have when it works, when something clicks and it's not the same feeling you have when you yell at them, when you tell them how disappointed you are in them, when you tell them that made me sad. Uh, These are ways that we're trying to control their behavior. And when we give up control, and like you said, with adequate structure, (laughs) then we, we really see them flourish. And again, in a time where I feel very protective of people that are in the K-12 classrooms. It's it's a job and a half these days. And I want them to feel good about what they're doing. And so that's part of my mission is to try to encourage more autonomy-supportive teaching so that 
we don't have as much teacher burnout. Teachers are happier doing what they're doing. And we've done studies with autonomy-supported teaching all over the world in all kinds of classrooms. And sometimes I hear people say, yeah, well, you don't know these students. These students need that kind of control. And it's never true. Even in countries that have a much more collectivistic orientation, China, Korea, Ghana, in even in those uh, countries, autonomy may look a little different than it does for a middle school kid in central Kansas. But autonomy is still really important to them. And those sense that sense that they have some choice and some volition and some some ability to have input on what they're doing and how how their education is going matters to everybody. That's awesome. Was there anything we didn't talk about that you'd like to share with our listening audience? One thing I wanted to make sure to let you know, if you have questions about this, because I don't have a handy dandy handout for you, you're welcome to email me. I'm probably like a lot of the people on the podcast. I'm a professor at Emporia State University, and my email is jmoss3, letter J, the word moss, and the number three, at emporia.edu. And in addition to answering questions that you have, I would be so happy to be involved in helping you and maybe your faculty at your school do some training on how to be more autonomy supportive, which leads to less controlling. <laughs> you can you can kind of see my parentheses there, right? <laughs> but um, I am looking for some districts in central Kansas to do some work with, partly because that's where I'm located driving time-wise. But I'm looking for some folks to do some pilot study research with in possibly in more rural communities, but we're open and helping kind of spread the awareness and the benefits of teaching with autonomy, just like we did back in the 50s and 60s of how we taught with control and sit down straight lines and face the teacher, don't ask questions, no, you can't get up. We need to bring more autonomy support and autonomy supportive teaching to the classrooms because we know how much benefit there is. And I think we actually would have an entire podcast episode that could be on just autonomy supportive things teachers can do. I don't know. Are you game for that? Absolutely. I could talk <laughs> about this all day. I would love that. I love this. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time and joining us today. And I feel like I learned a lot. Thank you. Sure. Thank you so much, Christy. I love the How We Teach This podcast and reaching people is so important. And I appreciate the work that you're doing. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to like and subscribe. This podcast is sponsored by the Teachers College at Emporia State University, featuring talks with experts and educators. We release new episodes every other Wednesday. Our guests provide more information on our website, www.emporia.edu slash HWTT. 
follow us and share on X with at HWTT underscore ESU. On Facebook and Instagram, search for How We Teach This. If you would like to be a guest on our show or want to provide feedback, please send us an email at hwtt at emporia.edu. I'm Christy Dugan, your host and executive producer. You've been listening to How We Teach This. Thank you 